Okay, now, y'all going to need uh, your notes. Did you hear that Southern, by the way, y'all? I, I was born and raised in the South, Southern California. <laughs> How many veterans do we have here this morning? I get out of the glare of the lights. Any veterans here? Would you please stand? Why don't you stand? Any veterans? All right. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. What branch? Army. What branch? Army. Go Army, huh? Go Army. What branch? You're in the sub-service? So, so when you're underwater in a submarine, you have to hold your breath, right? <laughs> what branch? Army. Army. Wow. Thank you for your service. <clears throat> I am a veteran of the Vietnam War. <clears throat> I did three tours on Navy gunboats, on the rivers and the tributaries in the Mekong Delta in the former country called South Vietnam. In fact, for those of you who were in the military, I still have my dog tag. Uh, this first went around my neck in boot camp, and then this dog tag was around my neck during three tours in Vietnam. Vietnam is a beautiful country. The people in the former South are lovely, they don't like communism. The food is delicious. The beaches and surfing are awesome. It's just that tiny pieces of lead coming at you at a high rate of speed can tend to ruin your entire day. Little did I know while I was getting shot at <clears throat> that I would get a 10% discount 53 years later at Culver's. <laughs> Such a deal. My favorite animal in Vietnam was the duck, because it's what I did a lot. I've been back to Vietnam many times, working with underground churches, because it's a communist country, and above-ground churches, while I served as the Asia director for Encompass World Partners. My first time back to Vietnam, um, I was detained by the police for two days, but the gates of Hades will not prevail against the truth of God. And we now have an ongoing ministry in Vietnam. So let's begin with the title at the top of your notes. The Providence of God in America's Wars. Providence, not miracles. There is a difference between a miracle of God and the providence of God. So on your notes, follow along. A miracle is an event that has characteristics, here's the key, that cannot be explained by natural laws, natural forces, or anything else in the physical universe. So let me give you an example. A soldier loses a limb because of an IED, an improvised explosive device, and the limb just appears, just like that. That is called a miracle of God. Now, on your notes... Providence, on the other hand, are events caused by God, here's the key, using natural laws or natural forces 
to accomplish his purposes. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history, moving things about to accomplish his eternal purposes and our good. So an example would be during the Revolutionary War when fog appeared and concealed the movement of 8,000 colonial troops from the eyes of the British. It's not a miracle. It's providence. God used natural events. So on your notes, let's go through some examples of God's authority over the nations. Genesis 11:8. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth at the Tower of Babel. Psalm 22:28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. I love Daniel 2:21. God removes kings and he sets up kings. Daniel 4:25. God is sovereign over all kingdoms of, on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes because he's God. Acts 17:26. God sets national boundaries. And Romans 13:1, all governing authority is established by God. Several years ago, my wife and I became friends with a girl from an Eastern European country who was studying music over the summer in Winona Lake at the former Masterworks. One day she asked, why, why do you Americans celebrate war? Your national anthem is a celebration of war. And we gently responded, no, our national anthem is not a celebration of war, but it's a celebration of God's providence during the war of 1812. The national anthem is not glorifying war. It's marveling how God providentially preserved the city of Baltimore during the Battle of Fort McHenry. Now, why, why did God birth America and sustain us over these last 245 years. By the way, we have the longest standing constitution in history. Why America? Well, the same question could be asked of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, going into Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, you had one language on the earth, and you come out of the end of chapter 11, and you now have 70 languages. And out of that pool of 70 languages, God reached down and he picked up one man named Abram and separated him from the 69 others. And God said, Abe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work differently than I did previously. I'm going to work through you. I'm going to bless you, and I want you to turn around and be a blessing to the other 69. Abe, I, I'm going to bless you, but, but don't keep it to yourself. It's not for you, it's through you. So why Abram in Genesis chapter 12? Why America? The answer is because. It was God's sovereign choice. On your notes, uh, look at Matthew 16, 18. Men and women, I am convinced that the founding and sustaining of America is related to the prediction in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Based 
on a tsunami of historical evidence. And speaking of historical evidence, Reg loaned me this book. 1,011 pages. Check the title, America in God's Providence. And I asked Reg if I could read all these pages this morning. And he said, yeah, go ahead. But I'm so gracious, I'm not going to... Based on a tsunami of historical evidence, I am of the mindset that the American experiment, and men and women, it is still an experiment, that the American experiment is the result of the hand of God providentially moving at the fullness of, of time, his time, that's Galatians 4.4 language, to launch a political system of freedom from the bottom up for the first time in history, a, a system where the people at the bottom rule, therefore we the people, and at the same time implementing an economic system called capitalism. In other words, God moving in history. So let me, let me pause on that word, history. How many students do we have here this morning? Raise your hand. Students, okay? Any, students, students, students? History, uh, for a lot of people, is like math. No offense, Gloria. History, boring. Names and dates, right? No. History is the hand of God in the glove of history. And what history is, it's H-I-S. S-T-O-R-Y. And, and, and if you look at history providentially, then that makes all those names and dates, that boring stuff, come alive because you're watching the hand of God. And what did God create in 1776? A first time in history phenomena called the middle class. History had never seen this economic phenomena called a middle class. And there was a colloquialism to describe the middle class and its disposable income. Men and women, that's scandalous. Not only in history, that's scandalous today in the world. There are people in the world who could never imagine that people would have excess money to spend how they want disposable income. So why America in 1776 to create a, a, a land of freedom and finances where people had disposable income in order to accelerate the spread of the gospel because it takes money to do that. On your notes, here's my thesis. So, God launched a first time in history country marked by freedom and finances that has been used to extend the gospel into more nations in the past 245 years than the previous 1,776 years of church history combined. That's just well established. From this land of freedom with a middle class with extra money 
has come worldwide Christian influences. For example, mission agencies. There are 900 different mission agencies in the United States today. Billy Graham, Crew. We heard about the Jesus Film Project from Mike. That's rated as the most powerful um, it's evangelistic tool in church history, the Jesus Film. Wycliffe Bible Translators, Transworld Radio, schools and hospitals have been built around the world by Christians. Christian radio and television blanket the earth. Apparently, in 1776, on God's timetable, he wanted to accelerate the Great Commission. Okay, let's dive into the title at the top of your notes. America's Wars. Look at the years on your notes between the wars. 29 years, 46 years, 33 years, 16 years, 23 years, 5 years, 12 years, 18 years, and we're currently involved in the worldwide war on terror. Now, men and women, if we factor in Ephesians 6.12, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, comma, and then Paul puts in but, and then he uses the word against four times. Against, 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 against spiritual forces of evil. If we factor in Ephesians 6.12, then perhaps the wars listed on your notes are spiritual wars where Satan is trying to take down America and stop the spread of the gospel. I believe that God has preserved us with the longest-lasting constitution in history for his great commission. And that's what's at stake today. So let me give you a glimpse, just a taste, of God's providential hand in America's wars. And let's begin with the Revolutionary War. This was an eight-year war between civilians and soldiers. There is no way in the world that a ragtag group of farmers and merchants could go up against the most powerful army in the world. Limited money, limited food, limited weaponry, limited uniforms. You know the story of how these men actually just, they wrapped their feet um, while they were wintering over in Valley Forge. I'm looking out the back window and see snow on the ground. They lived in that stuff with with rags wrapped around their feet. If you type into your search engine, providence of God in the Revolutionary War, you're just going to get sight after sight after sight. Here's the title of one site. Ten George Washington quotes pointing to God's providence. One of those familiar words in George Washington's vocabulary was the word providence. So let me give you just one story of God's providence, and I'm going to give you the very short version. The date is August 1776. Okay, students, here we go. A date. Yawn, right? The date is August 1776. It's only one month after independence was declared on July 4th. The British army of 32,000 soldiers had backed Washington's 8,000 soldiers 
against the East River on Long Island. And then the British formed a semicircle of 32,000 soldiers around the 8,000 soldiers with their back against the river. The only possible retreat was by river. Washington knew that if he tried to go up against the British army of 32,000, that the war of independence was over. It would have been over in one month. It's estimated that one quarter of Washington's 8,000 troops were wounded or sick. Washington was completely trapped with no escape, so he decided to retreat across the mile-wide East River. He issued orders for every rowboat, <laughs> sailboat, every boat, anything that floated to be quietly collected. But unknown to Washington, the British were planning to sail their warships up the river to block any kind of river retreat. As Washington's men gathered the small boats, a small, strong storm entered the region. Then the heavy rain and the strong winds prevented the British ships from taking their positions. And when darkness came, it was now completely impossible for the British ships to take their positions. And then the storm stopped. And, and a gentle breeze began to blow from the west and the southwest, carrying any sound this way, away from the British. Listen to the eyewitness account of Major Benjamin Talmadge. Quote, a very dense fog began to rise. You see, the men were escaping across the river under the cover of darkness, but then the sun started to come up and, and not all the soldiers had crossed over. Now it's daylight. If the British saw what was happening, they would have attacked and killed the remaining colonists, including George Washington. But a fog rolls in. <laughs> and Major Benjamin Talmadge says, a very dense fog began to rise. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well. A fog so dense that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. The fog hovered over the area until the last American boat left the shore and George Washington was in that boat. Chance? Luck? Fate? Circumstantial? But the story of God's providence doesn't end there. There's more to that story, but I must end due to time. Let's ponder the providence on your notes. What would the world look like today if America had not gained independence from England? In other words, in the last 245 years, there was no United States of America. Number two, what would the spiritual landscape of the world look like over the past 238 years? Let's go to the War of 1812. Do you know when the War of 1812 was fought? 29 years after the War of Independence, the British still had the strongest army and navy in the world. The War of 1812 is called the Second Revolutionary War. Let's look at the Battle of Washington, D.C. August 24th, 1814, 
5,000 British soldiers marched into Washington, D.C. and entered the city at 8 p.m. and set fire to the Capitol building. At 10.30 that night, the British soldiers advanced on the White House and set it on fire. The glow of the burning of Washington, D.C. could be seen from 50 miles away, according to eyewitnesses. Now, on your notes, follow along as I read the History Channel quote. And the History Channel is not a Christian station, right? Next day, August 25th, 1814, the British set fire to the Library of Congress and other buildings by fire. By 2 p.m., two events would transform a burning Washington into a scene beyond comprehension. The first event, with little warning, the most powerful hurricane in history hit Washington. And then the second event, in the midst of that hurricane, a tornado suddenly appears and shears through the center of the Capitol. According to the History Channel, the tornado touches down like the wrathful hand of God from the Old Testament. The storm raged for two hours. When the storm cleared out the next day, so did the British as a battered and bewildered army. Fate, luck, chance, circumstance, or providence? You know, the Bible is filled with passages describing God using weather for his providential purposes. Uh, a great darkness and hailstones in Exodus 9 and 10. A strong east wind parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14. A large cloud covered the Israelites through the wilderness on their way to the promised land in Exodus 13 and 14. A powerful storm in the Jonah story. And God held the sun still for a day in Joshua chapter 10. And then we've got Mark chapter 4. And, and the stilling of the storm. And they woke Jesus up, and, and, and he talked to the storm, and he said, be quiet, stop. And, and listen to the results, of the, the, uh, what the men said. They said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Providence. Let's look at the Battle of Baltimore. The Battle of Baltimore fought September 12 through 14, 1814, was the defining moment in the War of 1812. Two weeks after Washington, D.C., the British targeted Baltimore, Maryland, at that time the third largest city in the colonies. The city is protected by an army fort at the end of the peninsula, Fort McHenry. On September 11th, the British fleet came together men and women, 50 warships. These 50 warships ranged in firepower from 80 cannons down to ships with 36 cannons, and then they had rocket and bomb platforms, rafts, bombarding Fort McHenry. At 6.30 a.m., September 13, 1814, the British began a 25-hour naval bombardment on the fort. Rockets whistled through the air and burst into flames whatever, whenever they struck. Mortars fired 10- and 13-inch bombshells that exploded overhead and showers of 
fiery shrapnel. During the bombardment, a 200-pound shell made a direct hit on the powder magazines where a quarter of a million pounds of powder was stored. It was the main powder magazine for the defense of Baltimore. By nightfall, the bombardment had been going on for 12 hours from 6.30 to 6.30 at night and then continued during the night. After 25 hours of continuous bombardment, the barrage is over. The British Navy turns and retreats. On your notes, look at the History Channel quote. Again, not a Christian source, but miraculously, that word belongs to God. But miraculously, the, the shell, the 200-pound shell, failed to ignite, saving Fort McHenry from complete destruction. As the morning mist melts away, Francis Scott Key sees the stars and stripes flying over Fort McHenry. He was on the main deck of a ship six miles downriver, and he wrote a poem originally entitled The Defense of Fort McHenry. And this is what he wrote. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light it had been dark for 12 hours, and now the sun is beginning to come up. It's daylight. And he said, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? In other words, the night before, as the sun was going down and darkness was coming up, the darkness did away with any eyesight. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at, at, at twilight's last gleaming and then 12 hours of continuous bombardment, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, flapping, and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air. If any of you have been in combat, you understand this kind of language. Gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The Battle of New Orleans, 4,000 civilians against 10,000 British soldiers. On your notes, look at the History Channel quotes. Improbably, Old Hickory's ragtag army had just trounced the world's best fighting force in less than two hours. The History Channel goes on to say, there has never been in the annals of military history such a lopsided victory as Andrew Jackson had in defeating the British. And look at, the, look at the last quote. It is the story of a childish nation. We, we were only 29 years old. <laughs> it is the story of a childish nation, which but by the grace of God, this is the history channel, and a few soldiers, sailors, and Marines almost never had a chance to reach maturity. 
And let me add, in order to accelerate the great commission of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. On your notes, let's ponder the providence. Was it an interesting coincidence of timing and history that Napoleon needed bucks and sold the Louisiana territory to America? Was it a coincidence or what my wife likes to call it a God incidence? That's a whole different story filled with providence on the sale of the Louisiana territory. Number two, if, if you look at this through Great Commission lenses, once again, against all odds, how did the Americans beat the strongest military force in the world? And, and, and we have a biblical example of this. How does this war compare to the David and Goliath battle? What would church history look like in the past 206 years if we had lost the Second Revolutionary War? And then number five, it's already been quoted. Does Ephesians 6.12 relate to our history? For our battle is not against flesh and blood, comma, but against, 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 against spiritual forces. Look at the Spanish-American War. So, tell me, someone, or how long was the Spanish-American War? Okay, you can use your fingers if you want. How long was the war? Four months. On your notes, ponder the providence of this four-month war. Number one, what in the world did God have up his sleeve in terms of Guam and the Philippines at the end of the 1800s? Number two, the Spanish-American War gave the United States a foothold in Asia in preparation for World War II, 43 years in the future. In 1898, do you, did, these, did the people know that there was going to be a world war and, and, and that war was going to be, part of it was going to be in the Pacific Theater and that God providentially moved in, in his story to give the United States a foothold 43 years earlier through a four-month war into Guam and the Philippines? Look at number three. General Arthur MacArthur was the first military governor general over the Philippines. And General Arthur MacArthur had a little boy named Dougie. Little Dougie. Look at number four. General Douglas MacArthur commanded World War II from the Philippines on the fifth floor of the Manila Hotel, the most exquisite hotel in Manila. The Filipinos so loved General Arthur MacArthur because of the way he treated them with respect, unlike the way the Spanish Empire treated them. And when his son came in 43 years later, they built on top of the Manila Hotel, the four stories, they built the fifth floor. It's called today the MacArthur Suite. It's a museum. And from the fifth floor of the Manila Hotel, General Douglas MacArthur ran the Pacific Theater in World War II that we gained 43 years earlier. Chance? Luck? Fate? Circumstance? Coincidence? Look at the Korean War on your notes. Ponder the providence. In 1900, Christian missionaries labeled Korea as 
impenetrable. That's a big word. You know what that means? It's like sowing seed on cement. Impenetrable. Number two, Korea is about the landmass of Kentucky, yet it's home to five of the world's 20 largest congregations, including the world's largest Assembly of God, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist congregations, plus dozens of other churches that draw more than 2,000 worshipers weekly. When I was the Asia director, I would cross the pond every three months, and, and when our fuel stop was going to be in Seoul, Korea, we would look out the window, and we would just count the crosses as we're coming into landing in Seoul. One, two, three, just crosses. The landscape of Seoul, Korea is a landscape of crosses. Christian churches. Number three, headline, Seoul, megachurch capital of the world. Yoido, full gospel, has 800,000 worshipers. Young Nock Presbyterian, I have been there, 60,000. Today, Korea is the number one missionary sending country in the world per capita. Korean missionaries are in 168 countries today. That's 70% of the countries of the world. Men and women, these Koreans are fearless. Um, Communism, Islam, they are, they are fearless because they've lived under the threat of North Korea all their lives. And so they're out there proclaiming the gospel. I did this presentation last Thursday on Veterans Day at Grace Village. And as I was on the platform uh, looking down on a, on a sea of Korean veteran caps, that was a brutal war. Brutal. And I told these men, do you know what you did? You stopped communism in order to keep the South free. And look what God has done. The gospel has spread all over the world through these Korean missionaries. Number six, how would the spread of the gospel in the world today have been altered if communism, if communist North Korea had taken over the South? Let's go to my war. I call it the Southeast Asian Wars. You see, there were three simultaneous communist revolutions going on, all independent of each other. Laos, Cambodia, and of course we were involved in Vietnam. And all three of these countries fell to communism within months of each other in 1975, and then Southeast Asia was a bloodbath. It was brutal. In Cambodia alone, 30% of the population died in a four-year time period. Historians today are saying Cambodia was the worst atrocity of the 20th century, the, the 1900s, in terms of population size. 30% of the population. <clears throat> when I went to Cambodia for the first time in 1990, there were 10 churches and 100 Christ followers. Today, Cambodia's got thousands and thousands of churches and 340,000 Cambodian Christ followers. Now, in Vietnam, we don't know how many churches there are because so many of them are underground because of communism, but it's estimated that there are 2 million Christ followers in Vietnam. 
Vietnam was a guerrilla war. We had not fought a guerrilla war since the Revolutionary War when we were the guerrillas <laughs> and the British wore the uniforms. In Vietnam, we wore the uniforms and the Viet Cong were the guerrillas, meaning women and children were also combatants. It was tough. But God used those wars over a 10-year time period to loosen the soil of Buddhism, to loosen the soil of animism, which is spirit worship, for the seed of the gospel to be planted and the church is growing like crazy. Let's go to the war on terror. And the worship team is going to be coming up as we talk about the war on terror. Ponder the providence. The first attack, Islamic attack, against the United States was not 9-11. It was 1993. They planted bombs in the World Trade Center wanting to bring down the World Trade Centers through, basement, through a basement bomb. Then the second attack was 9-11. In the last 20 years, more Muslims have come to Christ than the previous 1,400 years of Islam put together. Did you get that? That's, this is our time period. In, in Iran alone, this, again, it's like wildfire. Underground, Iranians are coming to Christ by the droves. On your notes, if the seven verses on your front page are true that we read, if God is God, then the world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. Events are not out of control. They're under control. The present is not hopeless because the future is hopeful. And the chicken just got it wrong. The sky is not falling. The stars are still twinkling God's glory as they have since the days of creation. And the song says he's got the whole world in his hands. Therefore, he's got your world in his hands. Do you realize that the earth is spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour, and it's been spinning for 6,000 years? And it's not a top where God has a string and he has to keep winding it up to keep it spinning. The sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. We're spinning. When you wake up in the morning, you ought to get out of bed and stagger across your bedroom because you've been spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And if he's got the world in his hands, nothing is spinning out of control in your hands. He's got your world in his hands. And Psalm 121, verse 4, God never dozes or sleeps. Since he's awake all night, you can close your eyes and peacefully sleep. <laughs>